Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Josh Perry is a former professional BMX rider. Just as his professional career was blossoming at age 21, he discovered a tumor in his brain. Five weeks later, he was back on his bike. After two more brain tumor diagnoses, he began researching health and nutrition. In 2015, he completed his training to be a holistic health coach. He is the founder of dailybrainstorms.com to share his story and passion with the world. He created the Josh Perry Foundation as his way to give back. He is the host of the fantastic podcast, The Gray Matters, which embraces both gray areas in life and the gray matter in the brain. Josh is passionate about coaching others to optimize their health and performance in every aspect of life. Josh Perry, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to have a conversation with me and then uh, also allowing me to speak what I have on my mind. Yeah, absolutely. We're so excited to listen to it. This has been a long time coming because you just completed a move and we had to kind of postpone this a little bit. Tell us uh, how, how the move went. Yeah, so I guess it's been officially two weeks now since we moved out here to Florida on the East Coast, just south of Daytona Beach. And um, yeah, it went well. I mean, we, we packed up and uh, got the moving truck, packed that up in a day, and then the next morning um, finished. Oh, I guess, no, no, so we got the moving truck, packed up, finished the next morning, and then headed out and got here at like 1 a.m. Um, two weeks ago, so like Wednesday morning at 1 a.m., and then um, that whole day I was on a mission to get on, at least get everything out of the truck and put it into the house. And we did that. So wow. we've been settled in for about a week now. And actually Jackie left, um, Sunday to work a Taekwondo event, the nationals in Vegas. She's an athletic trainer. Um, so she, uh, is gone for the week. So I'm just at home with, uh, our cat and our dog. <laughs> That's awesome. What prompted the move? Why did you leave North Carolina for Florida? Uh, a few reasons. So uh, I think first and foremost was we want to be closer to family. And then two, I realized that now that BMX doesn't um, play a major role in my life, if any role in my life anymore, in terms of actually riding my bike the way I used to, um, realized that I had more flexibility where I could live because it wasn't you know, solely through the lens of what's best for my training and my career in BMX. So it just opened us up to the possibility of moving other places. And, you know, we didn't have um, much of our immediate family nearby. I mean, none of my family was in the state of North Carolina, but Jackie has an aunt and uncle and cousin like an hour and a half away. And then another cousin, like 45 minutes away in North Carolina, but her parents are down here in Florida and she's obviously from here. And that adding into the third piece of her leaving athletic training full time at a private high school in Durham, North Carolina, to pursue her photography business full time and then do like athletic training events, you know, as a bonus or freelance type stuff. So it just, you know, worked out to where we, you know, wanted to move closer to family, uh, be closer to the beach, allow her um, this time for her to focus on starting her business and me to just have the flexibility with how I run my business to go wherever. And just to explore life out of North Carolina, because I spent half my life where I'm from in Massachusetts, and then the other half um, up until now in North Carolina with the focus of BMX. So now we're here in Florida and just, um, yeah, just starting the, the next chapter of our life, her, you know, watching her on her journey, exploring, you know, entrepreneurship and passion and purpose behind what she does. Not that she wasn't about athletic training, but just there's a lot more opportunity for her to grow, to create the ideal life she wants to on her own terms. And uh, it's just fun to be able to support her, watch her on that journey while, you know, I'm, I'm doing my thing and to uh, be closer to family and because my, 
my dad and my stepmom up north a uh, a good reason to get to Florida uh, to escape the the cold weather. <laughs> That's great. Sounds like you guys make a really good team. Um, I really want to ask you a question that I ask all the cyclists that come on this show. What is so special about a bicycle? There's something different about a bicycle that makes it really special. And to you, what is that thing? I think what, what stands out, what first comes to mind about why a bike was so special to me was because it started out as a form of transportation, just kind of freedom to get around to, through the neighborhood to my friend's house which obviously led me to go to the skate parks and stuff like that. But I think on a deeper level, it was a, an avenue I felt like was the only avenue I had as a, a young boy and moving into my younger years as an adult where I could freely express myself authentically. And I gained a lot of confidence through developing the skill on my bike. And it just felt you know, all, all that to say, like the word that summarizes everything is just a freedom, like a sense of freedom to be me in my own unique way and not have, um, you know, any, any suppression of my expression of who I was. And then of course, you know, as I got into competition, which is an interesting area I've dove into trying to understand my past, uh, programming leading me into a place of judgment as a career with, you know, former insecurities growing up, but it, it just, it was a place for me to express myself freely. And then of course, as I got better and wanted to, per, you know, produce better quality contest runs or video parts or, um, you know, promote my sponsors and things like that. Then of course the insecurities came and the self judgment and worry and doubt, but even through all of it, it was like my place of confidence. It was my place of mastery. It was my place where I used to refer to as the only place I could block out anything going on in my life and free myself from concern by being on that bike. So in short, it started out with, you know, fun and, um, means of transportation before I could drive. And, uh, then it just turned into this place where I could express myself fully. And then that just led into the addiction to progression and the, delayed gratification. Like I didn't understand that term back then, but like just working for something and being so hungry to create something or accomplish something. And then the amount of times you fall down and how painful it is literally, uh, physically, and then mentally, of course, and emotionally, uh, literally blood, sweat, and tears like that phrase. I mean, that was BMX, but to, to accomplish something you set out to do, which could take a day or could take sometimes years, that sense of gratification and success was just addicting. And then the level of progression, which I think is what every human being craves at the end of the day is momentum, like feeling like you're, you're moving forward, you're striving towards something. I, it just, it just took over. And then it just obviously became, um, big, big aspect of my life, like the sole focus of my life, which led me to drop out of high school, leaving my family at 17, moving 14 hours south to North Carolina to pursue that path. And then it just obviously, you know, led into other areas of my life in terms of it literally and figuratively saving my life. But yeah, it started out with just something fun and interesting to do. Um, you know, I played school sports and I was good at them. And I just wasn't as interested in it as I was with action sports. And then when BMX came along, it just, it just grabbed me and it just, yeah, it kept going. So wow. there's so many aspects. This is kind of hard to answer that question because there's so many things that stand out about its interest and how it developed, uh, you know, being an adult now reflecting, but you know, the main thing was just fun, um, free, like freedom to travel around, um, get around to my friends and then just freedom of self-expression. 
Wow. I want to talk about that spot in North Carolina. There's there's always like some town in like the Dominican Republic where like a ton of professional baseball players come from or like some little place in Canada where like four or five professional hockey players come from. What was it about that spot in North Carolina? Everybody was there, it seems like. Yeah, so Greenville, North Carolina, uh, it's home to East Carolina University, uh, Sports Illustrated labeled as Protown USA after, you know, it being recognized as the BMX hub at the time. And I guess the long, so there is a documentary film about it that I had um, a couple of clips in just talking about my experience there and a couple of riding clips, which was, you know, phenomenal to be a part of that, that film, but they called it Protown USA and the, the, like the, the film itself. And it just summarized the answer to your question and just on a surface level, um, long story short, uh, Dave Mira, who, you know, was known as like the Michael Jordan of BMX. He was, he was the guy that put BMX on the map that paved the way for people like myself and, um, really brought the athleticism and sportsmanship and, you know, sponsorship and things like that to the next level. If not, you know, put it like, I guess what he was known for too. And BMX was like putting a full run together as like a sport and treated it like a sport and treated himself like an athlete, which is what I think gave BMX the, you know, recognition of other sports and just put it to the next level. But, uh, his older brother moved out there to follow his girlfriend at the time who went to East Carolina university and discovered a local skate bike park an action sports park outside uh, called JC park. That's still there today. And at the time that was kind of unheard of to have such a good quality uh, set of ramps public. And so he convinced Dave to move out. His older brother is Tim. So Tim convinced Dave to move out. And then Dave told his, you know, friend and, you know, just, it kept going and more and more people were getting together because the ramps, had a, you know, they facilitated a good training spot and then the environment of people and then the daily sessions. And then over time they kept upgrading the ramps. And then, you know, lo and behold, Dave uh, bought some land, built a warehouse, built his ramps. And then Ryan Nyquist did the same. And um, by the time I moved out there, there was two private indoor training facilities. There was the revamped uh, public JC park that Mike Laird, a another professional BMX rider I looked up to, became friends with, um, who was also a welder by trade. And he redid the park with another BMX legend I looked up to, Jeremy Fanberg. So they like revamped it. So you had this revamped, updated outdoor public facility for anyone in action sports to enjoy that at any given time, there was one or more pro BMX riders out there. Then you had two private training facilities. You had backyard ramps, you had dirt jumps out in the woods. You had East Carolina university for like the street riders to, you know, get their, um, street session on with the rails, the ledges, the stairs, and just, there was so many little spots throughout the town, but then also in terms of like a human lifestyle aspect, you know, the cost of living was super cheap. Um, you know, it was a small town. It was, you know, a lot of young people there for the school. So people like myself that moved there when I was 17, I was paying 250 bucks a month for rent. And then, you know, the endless amounts of young girls to chase around, uh, the, the low cost of living, like everything just made the perfect equation for people like myself, you know, no sponsors or anything to come out there and try to give it a shot while working a part-time job and being able to make it happen. That's 
Amazing. That is so cool. What a fun thing to think back on and reflect on. Um, BMX is interesting because even within the sport of BMX, there's several different disciplines. Can you tell us a little bit about which version you kind of were drawn to the most and were the best at? Yeah. So that's, I think one of the, the biggest pieces that holds BMX back from growing like any other sport is it's so hard to understand because in BMX, you have two aspects. You have BMX racing, which has been the Olympics the last three or four, I believe. And then you have BMX freestyle. So BMX racing, is its own thing. Everyone understands that it's a racetrack. It's where BMX was founded on the, you know, the dirt racetracks and they are a full on sport. They're all athletes and they've been treating themselves like that for years. BMX freestyle, from my understanding was formed from racing, but it was like the people that didn't want to abide by the rules that wanted to kind of do the tricks, not so much race. They wanted to go out in the streets and create ramps and do all sorts of different stuff, which founded freestyle. Now within freestyle, you have dirt jumps. So like you can actually go out in the woods and they, they refer to them as trails, but there's like these perfect sculpted pieces of art. Really at some of them, they look just perfect angles and they, they it's crazy how much time and dedication to put them in, but that's out in the woods that has a completely different vibe. Those are the the trail bosses, they call them, like the dudes that are out there and women um, that are digging and sculpting these dirt jumps. They spend more time digging and, and making jumps than they do riding them. It's like a work of art. It's it's. I've been involved with some um, building of dirt jumps like that, but to the level these people do it, it's just, it's just a lifestyle. So you have dirt jumps, like the trail scene. And then you have dirt jumps for like contests. So it's like jumps made to do tricks. And then you have what I competed in was the park. It's the ramps. And then you have street, which is what it sounds like. They're out in the streets. They're riding, they're grinding down rails and ledges and doing all sorts of stuff like that. And then you have vert ramps, which is a 12 to 14 and a half foot uh, half pipe. And most people know what that is. It's literally half of a full circle. It's a big monster ramp. And then you have Flatland, which is like BMX ballet. It's the most overlooked and I think difficult aspect of BMX. So um, cool. There's obviously not as much risk involved and fear, but the the dedication and the skill and the balance and like just how much like I, I I've learned some like fundamentals of Flatland for different park tricks, uh, mostly like filming tricks, not stuff I would do at a contest. But it's just so difficult. But anyways, there's that. And then you have the the newer version of like the big air, like the big 50 to 75 foot gap, 24 foot quarter pipe that to get speed, they have like a three story rolling that they actually take elevators up to and then to roll down that to go over a 50 or 70 foot of their choosing gap and then a what? 24 foot quarter pipe that they're going 10 to 20 feet above. And so, you know, it, there's just... There's just there's the two aspects of BMX, racing and freestyle. And then in freestyle, you have what what is that, like eight different versions of BMX freestyle? Wow. And then within each one of them, you have the riders that are competitive that compete in that version, whether it's dirt jumps, it's the street or the park or the vert or the flatland or the mega ramp. And then you have the ones that, you know, do it um, for their sponsors. They're more into the filming, the the projects, the art form of it, not so much the competition. They're more like self-competitive, which every BMX athlete is, but it's just a whole different world. And then it's just, there's so much to understand. And even as like me explaining this, who has been a professional athlete in the sport for a decade or so, and then been involved since, you know, 16, 17 years, there's so much to it. And for the outside looking in, it's like, 
it's a judge sport on top of it. So the competitions are super subjective. It's like the best thing I could compare it to is like maybe the floor routine in gymnastics. There's 60 seconds, uh, sometimes 30 or 45, depending on the event, but typically 60 seconds, you have two or three opportunities to put together a run and it's judged based upon a panel of judges and they all have their own style. They have their own thing they're looking for. And the variety of two people doing the same trick could be the difference of scoring could be how high the person went compared to the other person, the style they had, you know, the finesse, how they landed, how they looked while they were doing it, and then how they led into the next trick. So there's just so many aspects of it that I find confuses people to be like, well, they all did the same trick, but why did that guy win? Or why did that girl win? Or that person fell, but they still score higher than the other person didn't fall, but you know, they don't understand the difficulty of tricks. And so that all to say, there's so many layers of BMX, which is one of many action sports, that I think it makes it difficult for people to understand. And then now with the Olympics happening in less than 30 days now, with BMX freestyle for the first time being in there, I think it's going to bring a lot more awareness to BMX freestyle park, which is the ramps. And you know, hopefully that gets a lot more uh, brands involved to support the athletes to put on events, um, media coverage, and give more of the athletes an opportunity. But I think what's going to help is the announcers. Hopefully they pick some phenomenal announcers, which is plenty out there. I just don't know how they're working that with the Olympics. But that can distill what people are watching and allow them to try to understand what's happening. And hopefully that will help progress the sport forward. Mm, But I competed, back to your original question, I competed in park mainly. That was my focus was – was park riding. So that's what I got into X Games and Dutour and traveling around the world. Um, even my last season competing in 2016 was on the ramp. So I loved going fast, loved going upside down, spinning, tail whipping, transferring ramp to ramp, linking tricks and lines together to create a routine and the training aspect that went behind it. But I also rode the trails out in the woods. I rode the dirt jumps. I competed a couple of times in dirt events. Uh, I filmed video parts, which was obviously mandatory for sponsors and just different interviews and things like that. Um, but I, I tried riding vert as well. I did a little bit of cross training with that for certain quarter pipe tricks. And um, I just loved riding my bike ultimately. But what I focused on, what really inspired me with BMX was seeing people like Dave Meir and Ryan Nyquist competing at X Games and like Scotty Kramer and the, doing the, the backflips, the double flips tail whips 720s like i just love that and that's what i had access to where i was from Uh, being on cape cod we had a local park a couple of them when i was growing up but street riding um out there it's pretty flat and there's not so many uh, stairs or rails stuff like that so you know i gravitated more towards the ramps try to build some dirt jumps but cape cod it's a lot of sand so um i wasn't introduced to proper dirt jumps till later on so i just fell in love with the BMX freestyle park aspect. And that's what I, uh, created a career out of competing in. So cool. Yeah, that's so cool. And so you get onto the pro scene, work your way up a little bit. You get your first victory. I, I believe it was your first victory. And then you had a bit of bad health news after that, that we mentioned in the intro. Can you talk us through kind of what that was like? Yeah. So it was April, 2009. I won my first pro contest. Uh, one of the bigger events they had back then, not quite X games or do tour level, but it was a big event that everyone tried to go to. And then after the contest, I landed a trick for the first time that I actually came up with that won me a brand new Harley Davidson. And that um, 
got me the invite to X Games. That was my second year, I believe, competing on the Do Action Sports Tour back then, which is no longer around for BMX. Um, but that's like kind of what put my name out on the map um, further, I'd say, because a couple years prior, I ended a video contest that a bike sponsor uh, or a brand, a bike brand, put out to gain a sponsorship, and I made top ten. And back then, in two thousand seven, I believe it was. There, like YouTube, it was just coming out and being big, but um, content and social media wasn't really a thing. And there were um, the the BMX website, vitalbmx.com, and the brand Haro Bikes. They came together to put out this video entry contest, and then the top ten were flown out to Greenville, North Carolina, to train uh, for two or three days with Ryan Nyquist, Rob Darden, Rob Darden, and Colin McKay, who were the you know the top three uh, Haro Bike professional athletes. And we basically filmed a reality show with all of us competing essentially for one spot. And then the winner was picked at the end. And then myself and a bunch of other riders got on the amateur version of the sponsorship. And um, that's kind of what put all of our names out there. But then fast forwarding two years later, uh, winning that contest is what really put my name out into the forefront of people's awareness because I was kind of like the... Uh, not not even the underdog. I was the unexpected that came out of nowhere and then all of a sudden won this contest who um, the winner of it from the year prior, I believe, who was you know, one of the most known um, athletes in BMX for winning besides Dave Mira, he got second place and I got first. And wow. so and then I won the, the best trick contest as well and never been done trick in competition. And so that just put me um, into a lot of momentum throughout the 2009 season. And then 2010, March uh, 2010 training, trying a new trick for the first time on a real ramp outside of the foam pit to make sure I work out the kinks for the same contest coming up in April of 2010. And that trick went wrong, resulted in concussion and an MRI. Now, the interesting thing about this MRI was throughout the course of the year prior, I've been going in complaining of headaches, migraines, vision loss, vomiting, uh, nausea, all these things, and asking for a scan of my brain, x-ray, CAT scan, MRI, something. I didn't know at the time. I know now the difference between all of them and what they're important for and what they can and can't see. But I was like, hey, there's something wrong with me. And they kept judging me by my cover. They kept saying, you're young, you're in shape, you're healthy, blood work doesn't show anything, you just have headaches, here are some pain pills, come back if you need more. Lo and behold, I didn't have a pain pill deficiency because fast forwarding to March 2010 when I hit my head, had to get MRI now, they found a massive brain tumor. They didn't find any swelling um, besides where the tumor location was with pressure uh, or bleeding, like a TBI, they found a brain tumor. And that's that's what started my journey into auditing really every aspect of my being and how I could optimize it to be better on my bike, which um, really helped me, um, you know, hone in on nutrition, exercise mindset and apply that. And I came back stronger than ever, but yeah, it was, it was that crash that led to the MRI that saved my life. And something I love sharing is like, damn, man, like if I didn't fall in my head, I'd be dead today. Wow. That's so crazy. What a cool opportunity um, you know, taking a challenge like that and, and, you know, learning from it, being better from it. Did you ever feel like you hit like a rock bottom where you were feeling like hopeless? Yeah. So from diagnosis, the surgery was about a week, week and a half. I forget exactly. I'd have to go back and look at the paperwork, but, um, it, and actually it may, the MR, the diagnosis may have been into April because April 16th was my surgery. Um, 
so I forget the you know the time frame of like hitting my head maybe at the end of March um, and then not getting the diagnosis to early April whatever it was but um, yeah the first couple days like instantly when they the way they would describe it was described to me was one I was by myself because I was living in North Carolina by myself with my friends and two I thought I was just going in to be told yeah stay off your bike another week or two from typical protocol of concussions and so. The way it was described to me was when the doctor came in, he said that there was something abnormal with the scan. And I was like, damn, like I know, like I fall asleep in MRI machine. I can fall asleep really easily and I twitch when I'm falling asleep. So I was like, oh, did I move? Because I know if you move, the images don't come out clearly and you have to redo them. And he said, no, like the images came out clear, but there's something in your brain that shouldn't be there. And I remember laughing out loud, being like, well, what do you mean? I can't put anything in my brain. So what, what are you saying? And then he went on to say, well, this time we don't know if it's benign or cancerous, but we do know that the mass that's in your brain needs to be taken out if you want a shot at living. And by the way, you'll probably never be able to ride your bike again, or at least at the level what you do today. And all I heard was cancer, never going to ride your bike again, you may die. And that's what I took on as my belief in that situation was, you know, I'm going to die. And so throughout the week, week and a half, I started to understand uh, other people have overcome challenges and my mom to this day is alive, healthy and well, but for 10 plus years, she battled colon cancer. She hid it for me for quite a bit, uh, at least the severity of it from my comprehension as a 17 year old leaving to pursue my dream. Cause that was her dream to see me pursuing mine and being you know happy. Um, but I remembered, you know, I'm a part of my mom and she overcame this. I had that same courage and strength that she installed in me. And then learning about Lance Armstrong's story at the time, which I just went and rewatched his 30 for 30 yesterday. And 2010 was around the time where a lot of his um, doping lies were coming out. And then, um, or I think he retired in 2010. And then 2012, which is relevant to the second diagnosis I went through, was when he came out and talked about it, something like that. But the timeline was super transparent as far as like what path I was on in terms of like negativity. But regardless, he was a model of success to me. He was an inspiration as far as here's someone that looks a little like me from this country doing something that I'm doing on a bike, a little different objective, but went through brain, lung, and testicular cancer and came back. Regardless of how people think he went about it and if it was justified because everyone else was cheating with doping and this and that or not, to get back to the level of competition he did with or without performance-enhancing drugs was phenomenal. The reason I can say that confidently today is because, one, I went through brain surgery, and two, I didn't have chemo. He had chemo, and I know what that does to someone's body. And the fact that he overcame all that and then came back to the level which he did and happened to win multiple times, which you know that's up for debate depending on the context of the person, none of that mattered to me. What mattered to me was here's someone doing something similar that I'm doing that is facing a circumstance that I, or face a circumstance that I'm facing now. In my mind, it was three times as worse, not even to mention at the time, I didn't know if what I had was cancer or benign, which we found out later was benign, but that person overcame it and they got back to doing what they loved. So there was a shift in my focus. And so rather than focusing on what if I don't wake up one day, I started to focus on, well, that person did it what do I want? I started focusing on what I wanted and what I was going to do when I got out of surgery. And that was going to be the best version of myself. I was going to do everything I could to continue living my dream and progress 
And that's what I did. Mm. Wow. I mean, you and I share that he will always be a special athlete to me. Um, when, when the live strong stuff was kind of, um, kind of getting big, my mom was given about three months to live. She'd already battled cancer for about four to five years. And I was out of the country. I was in Brazil for two years and you know, she started, I was a cyclist. So she started watching the tour and becoming a little bit more interested. And I still have the handwritten note that she sent me in Brazil with my very first live strong band that, that talked about how inspiring it was to her that he was doing this. And she died in 2006, way before any of the doping information came out. And so for me, I agree with you hundred percent. He will always be somebody very special in my life. And I have live strong tattooed on my arm. And I think he did such an amazing job inspiring people like yourself, like my mom, like how many hundreds and thousands and millions of people out there that they can overcome these crazy challenges. So I love that. And I agree with you 100%. Um, so you, you ended up going back to competition. Is that correct? Yeah, I was, uh, after surgery, I was riding five weeks later and, um, yeah. And also I want to say, you know, I'm sorry about your mom. And that's something that the, the woman that was in the 30 for 30, who was someone who was also inspired by Lance's story was alive. And because of Lance's work and Livestrong's work, you know, her battling cancer and chemo, she was able to preserve her eggs before she went through chemo treatment. And now she has four kids. So wow. that's, that's what, when people are like, Oh no, he cheated. Like, how could you like someone like that? Like, I'll never forgive him. He like, they hate on him. It's like, man, like he was 20, 21. Like, and after listening to many of his interviews and reading his books, like to have no one in your life really telling, you no, to have a whole economy built around your name that you're employing people. And then you have all this money and power and to have that ego boosted to that level. And then you have a foundation riding on, on that saving lives, transforming lives, you know, raising tons of money. Like the whole Nike story around, they, they made what 5 million of those yellow wristbands sold them for a dollar and gave all that, like that's $5 million that wasn't there. But then that woman's story of him sharing something. And this is part of probably why I share so openly, but how he was preserving his sperm because, you know, he had to obviously have one testicle removed and then chemo. One of the side effects that back then, what she was sharing was, it's not talked about. It wasn't talked about back then that the risk could be for infertility. So by reading his article and her doctors not saying anything about it, she took the initiative to preserve her eggs and has four children today. So that's when people, you know, try to share, uh, or they, they don't try, they express negativity towards him. I'm like, I get it. I get it. I could, I could try to understand where you're coming from, but at the same time, what, your mom found in him, what I found in him, what many others found in what he represented and what he did is not to be dismissed by his choices that he learned from and he lost everything. And that's what they talk about in the 30 for 30. Like, and then what his kids had to go through, which he was, a he created that. Like it's enough of what he went through and then what came from all the hate and then what his children had to go through that when people say things like that, I'm always intrigued by their perspective. And then I usually ask, well, how much do you know about the situation? And typically it's, oh, he lied for years. He actually cheated. And then that's it. He's a bad person. It's like, man, there's so much more. Um, so I just want to take some time to appreciate the fact that your mom and I shared that, that we found some type of inspiration and hope 
to continue focusing on the fact that we may be okay, uh, we will have a better quality of life just because of that belief in that moment um, and that so many other lives have been transformed. But ultimately, that's what inspired me to do the work I do today. It just took two more diagnoses to wake up to that purpose that I was being led towards and which ultimately stopped me riding my bike. So, um, yeah, I forget what you were just asking about, but I wanted to acknowledge, you know, that part about your mom and just the whole, uh, correlation with Lance and people finding inspiration or finding hate with what happened with him and his, uh, his reality ultimately. Yeah. I mean, talk about gray matters that it's about as gray as it gets. Like there's, it's, it's a hero story. It's a villain story. It's everything all wrapped up and, and everybody will get something different out of it. So I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I, I agree with you hundred percent. He'll always be a hero to me for sure. Um, switching over to another gray matter, you started to learn about the relationship between brain health and diet, which I don't think a lot of people really connect those two things. So how did that start to come about and why is nutrition so important for brain health? Yeah, I mean, I think that people don't realize that what they do to, to their bodies, what they consume and how they live their life affects their brain because they can't see their brain. You know, like we break an arm, we can see that it hurts and we get it fixed. The brain perceives pain <laughs> and actually doesn't have pain itself. It's like a weird thing to try to explain, but we don't see it. So therefore, we don't ever really consciously think that what we're doing could be affecting it one way or another. We just typically think when it comes to our brain that, you know, don't hit your brain or don't do drugs because it's going to kill brain cells or this or that, or, you know, study and read to be smarter. But we don't think about the health, resiliency and strength and performance of our brain. For me, that was going through the obvious TBIs, concussions, brain surgery, gamma knife radiation in 2012 for a reoccurrence. Um, but ultimately what it was, was a friend sharing a documentary that just made so much sense and to the science of how simple it is of like your body rejuvenates every one of its cells over time. Some are daily, some take 10 years to fully rejuvenate. But what you feed yourself is what's building the materials for your being. It's like building a house. If you want to build a strong house, you know, you're going to use treated plywood. You're not going to use particle board. You're going to use treated plywood and you're going to put sealant over it and shingles on top of it. You're not going to put just particle board out there or cardboard and expect it to last. That analogy applies to the human body on a more complex level, but I find because people don't see their brains, they don't think about it that way. They don't even think about their bodies that way because that's not what mainstream you know, marketing and media and even education tells us. Um, so for me, it was really going through those wake-up calls and those adversities to open my mind to it. And then it was really open with that documentary. And then after the second diagnosis, which we treat with Gamma Knife, um, which is a form of radio wave therapy, this book called Grain Brain by Dr. David Perlmutter was given to me as a gift at the end of 2013. And the simple point he made in that book, being a, a neurologist who's a son of a neurologist who actually his son is a neurologist now, um, he made the point of blood sugar and how it correlates and directly affects different aspects of our brain health, resiliency, function, performance, longevity, all those things, and how we can track different biomarkers from what we eat. And that was the first time I ever heard about the word ketones, the word ketogenic, or keto, the ketogenic diet. Um, and he talked about that and the aspect of brain health and performance. But he also talked about things like fat and cholesterol and salt that are super misunderstood. And it's all context. There's all these studies that show fat makes you sick or this or that. And it's usually 
uh, or all of those studies for the most part that are using whatever type of fat source, whether it's quality or unquality, are all linked with high amounts of carbohydrates. And we know when we have elevated levels of carbohydrates consumed, our blood glucose levels rise, therefore insulin rises, therefore we have more free uh, free radicals or also known as reactive oxygen species, which all creates more inflammation. Now over time, when that becomes a chronic way or like a lifestyle way of eating and living and your body producing these things, that's where disease starts to take over and it's a slow onset. And in my case, it happened quick because I guess I was genetically predisposed to brain tumors and growth really. Um, So when we think about nutrition, it's it's often overlooked as more than just fuel. It's, it's, It's more than fuel, it's information. Every piece of food you eat has a different information piece attached to it that signals your body on a cellular level and a genetic level to do certain things. And we can, um, this is the study of gene expression called epigenetics. We can influence our gene expression, which I think it's been known now 70, 75% of our genetic makeup can be expressed one way or another. It's not just fixed with diet, with mindset, with lifestyle, with movement. And so it was just, it was that book and how eloquently and simply he put these pieces of the puzzle together that just clicked for me. And so I, I did my best to implement everything he said. And then, you know, I obviously got great results. I felt better. I looked better. I was thinking clearly. I was having little to no digestive issues anymore. Um, and then it was 2017 where a third brain tumor diagnosis uh, was found or, or came about. And my, education in this world of metabolic health is the best way to summarize it like nutrition and health and all that it's like metabolically what is it doing because that's what's triggering all these other cascade of events the word epigenetics and keto came so profoundly because this third diagnosis they told me the reason they thought i was having these reoccurrences was a genetic component like some kink in my dna that was creating this expression um, genetically and i remembered all right, well, Dr. Perlmutter talked about ketones having powerful signaling uh, abilities you know, epigenetically, and we can control um, the degree of inflammation with diet. Uh, we can do all sorts of things. And you know, with eating carbohydrates, we increase our glucose, which increases insulin, which cr- promotes growth. It's called insulin growth factor is one of the, uh, the molecules or whatever it's called. Um, so I put these things together and I was like, man, like, okay, eating carbohydrates promotes insulin, which promotes growth. Epigenetics, I think it's a genetic, you know, thing here. Ketones have, you know, powerful, positive epigenetic factors to them. Okay, let's get serious about this. I was, you know, tracking my macros back then, but because I was an athlete, I thought I needed X amount of carbohydrates a day. So I did more research on that, found that that was false under the context of keto adaptation or fat adaptation on a cellular level, which takes weeks to apply. So I was like, all right, we're tracking my macros. Let's just audit some things. Let's just critique some things. Let's let's decrease the carbohydrate intake. Let's start testing my blood for glucose and ketones, see where the changes need to be made. And then let's increase my fat intake a little bit more as I get more and more fat adapted to make up for the fuel, the lack of fuel that would, what's the word? Deficit. So removing carbohydrates for easy fuel, we need to replace that. The way the body works is it takes time to be able to switch to that fuel source. We're like hybrid machines. It just takes some time for essentially for the body to get the instructions to burn fat for fuel. So 
I started just doing all these things and changing things and educating myself more and got really passionate about the, the ketogenic diet and you know started over time supplementing exogenous ketones because we know with research that the brain prefers ketones for fuel so much so that even in the presence of glucose, the, the brain will utilize ketones before carbohydrates or glucose. Right. Same with the heart. They perform more efficiently. They use less oxygen per molecule. They produce less free radicals per molecule. And they're like solar energy compared to gasoline in a fire or sticks and pine needles on a fire. So I just put all these pieces together and I was like, man, there's something to this. I've actually got to hang out a couple times with Dr. Perlmutter, talk with him and a bunch of other thought leaders in the space, you know, Dr. Dom Diagostino, yeah, Dave wow. Asprey, Dr. Amen. I've done some work with all of them and Dr. Ryan Lowry. Like I, I have essentially I took the same path in BMX with the metabolic health and brain health aspect of, of this world. But ultimately where this story is going is I got that information with the third diagnosis. I recalled all the things I was learning, especially from Dr. Perlmutter's book, Grain Brain. I, I started lowering my carb intake. I upped my fat intake. I started introducing fasting and MCT oil and powder. Um, later on down the road, implemented exogenous ketones. And then for two years, um, scans showed no progression. And I kept doing that. And I you know, was really excited about it. Um, and that's, that's really what led me to becoming passionate even more so about communicating these complex topics and distilling them into be simple, practical things. And I know what I was just uh, sharing a minute ago was kind of probably over some people's heads, even though I was trying to do it, uh, explain it simply and quickly. But that's why I do all the things I do is because I want people to understand it's a lot simpler than it sounds. It just may take a conversation or two to you know understand the basics, but there's plenty of free resources. And I want to be one of those resources to help people because by me doing what I do and implementing the things I have, which allowed me to share from personal experience, I've helped people, you know, go from three to five seizures a day to a friend of mine who worked with me, started out as a client of mine, now good friends. He just posted about 600 days free of seizure now. Like, and that was to avoid a third brain surgery to remove more brain matter because his, his surgeon thought that's what was causing the seizures. But we know that ketones have powerful anti-seizure effects because that's how it was founded. It was the ketones were found on accident in nineteen twenties or thirties when they were fasting children with epilepsy, and they noticed their epilepsy, their seizures were going away. But then they were finding these molecules in the blood, and so the ketogenic diet was founded upon that understanding with adding protein to the mix in different ratios, so that way they weren't starving, but they were in a fasted state, so to speak. Because when you don't have carbs introduced to the body the glycogen stores, which are stored carbs in your liver and muscles, deplete. And then the body's forced to look at fat for fuel because we're hybrid machines. And with that fat metabolism, in abundance comes ketones, which can be used for energy. And so it's just, there's so much information about this way of living and eating that I want to be a vessel of sharing that because it's it wasn't easy for me to find. It's not mainstream. It goes against standard of care, which the pharmaceutical companies and big food companies have taken over because it's profitable. And obviously, the world we live in is run by politics and money. And it's just it's a whole other topic about my perspective on the focus should be human beings, health and wellness, not making money for a corporation organization. But 
ultimately that's, yeah, that's a long winded way of saying that Dr. Perlmutter multiple brain tumor diagnosis and the ketogenic diet uh, really helped me. And then it helped me with my voice and confidence sharing with other people. And by doing so, I've been able to help other people that never thought you know, nutrition could help their psoriasis or their knee pain or their seizures or their mental health struggles. And it just, it all comes back to what we're feeling ourselves nutritionally and mindset wise. I love that. That was so well explained. And I think there's something really unique and special about the person that not only goes through this kind of learning and gains that for themselves, but then gets so amped up about it that they want to share it with everybody in their lives. That's really wonderful. One way that you do that for free, like you mentioned, is your podcast. So when did you decide to start the podcast? And um, yeah, what's that been like getting going? Yeah, so the Gray Matters podcast was started by Jackie and I, um, was it end of 2017, early 2018 as a project we wanted to do together? We, you know, we wanted to talk about the gray areas of life. We, especially since then, have become such a polarized um, society in any nation. And, you know, social media definitely doesn't make that any easier to navigate. But so many arguments come down to this absolute one way or another. And that's not always the case. It's actually most of the time it's context, it's substance that's in the middle, the gray area. But then also Jackie and I are very passionate about mental health, brain health, of course, and being former athletes, you know, Jackie was a Team USA Taekwondo athlete for like 14 uh, years. And that's what led her into athletic training. And that's what led us together uh, back in 2015 when I was going through ACL surgery. Um, but we just are very passionate about these topics and helping people become the best versions of themselves, whether they're an athlete, um, a parent, uh, you know, an entrepreneur, an executive, an artist, whoever. It starts with your brain. It starts with your your belief structure. It starts with the f- uh, food you're feeling yourself with it's, it, and how you live your life and all these things. And so we just, we felt like we wanted to share. And so we started the podcast together, just sharing our story um, individually, our story together, which has evolved obviously in the last four years since we started the podcast and wanted to get perspective from other people, other friends. You know, we have friends of all races, religions, um, parts of the world, gender, sex, like athletes, um, or different career paths. Like we have so many friends with so many different perspectives and we wanted to just allow them to talk about these things with us in a safe environment, free of needing to explain yourself, just to share your truth. And then, you know, uh, the last two years, uh, Jackie has been on her own path, figuring out what she wants to do with her life and career, which is what led us down here and her going full-time with photography to pursue her real passion and then be able to do her other passion, athletic training, more freelance. But the last two years while she was on that journey, I just felt more and more compelled to speak about um, the things we, uh, we've been talking about with, with, with diet, with mindset, with emotions, with identity, with careers and athleticism and all these things. And so I kind of took over for the last two years. I've just been doing solo episodes. I've been interviewing other people. Um, I've been doing collaborate podcast episodes with other friends of mine that have podcasts. And uh, Jackie's been on a few here and there uh, since I've been kind of taking over. And I, I have ideas for her to come back and I'm just letting her do her own thing. So for right now, it's just, it's been a tool for me to share my voice, to answer questions that I, I get 
constantly from people to interview people of all walks of life just to talk about, you know, my favorite things to talk about is like vision, uh, purpose, identity, fear, overcoming adversity, and asking people how all those things apply to their life. And uh, just being a place, a resource for people to gain inspiration from because the only thing, I believe this, the only thing preventing someone from where they are now and getting to where they want to go is a belief structure and then following up with skills. And so if I can help share some information, some adversity I've gone through, which is why I'm so open, if I can help share something that changes someone's perspective, I know that's the first domino to change. It's changing how you look at your life, how you look at yourself and the outside world. Once that domino falls, it, it just keeps progressing because you can't look behind the curtain and see something and then unsee it. And so when I can share um, a story of mine or a story of a friend or a stranger's and then provide practical education and steps that people can learn and apply, then I'm doing my job. I'm fulfilled with my mission, which is what I got really clear on in 2017 after the third brain tumor diagnosis that my purpose in life is not to ride a bike. People don't care if I ride a bike or not. That's not what really sparks their interest in me. What really sparks their interest in me, what I've found is that I have the willingness to be courageous, not deny fear, but to acknowledge fear and do something I want to do anyways, because the purpose and the intention I have behind it, and then to be sharing that with other people. So what I represent is more than just a bike athlete. What I represent is overcoming fear, overcoming adversity, optimizing oneself to create the most ideal life uh, or version of your life you have in mind and creating change. And so that's what the podcast represents. It's just all these elements that Jackie and I are passionate about and wanting to share it with other people to be a resource. Because what Jackie and I learned with our past is there's been times where we felt you know, rock bottom maybe, we felt alone, we felt isolated, we felt weird, we felt broken, we felt embarrassed or guilty or shameful for whatever it was we were experiencing, feeling or thinking. And we wanna let people know that that's not the case, you're not alone. It's just a matter of you finding the right, what I call virtual mentors. And there's been so many of them for me, some of which I become friends with, like Dr. Perlmutter, Kerwin Ray, you know, and some that maybe I'll meet one day, maybe not, like Jim Carrey, Joe Rogan, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Like all these people have played significant roles in my life, whether they know it or not. Lance is one of them. I have an email I wrote to him 11 years ago that I'm waiting to the day where I can share it with him probably add a lot more context to it today, but just to be able to to provide that for other people, because what it did for me, it, it installed a belief that I could do something that many people doubted, whether they said it or not, and that I felt like I doubted that I could do it at the time until I learned about someone else doing it. And that's what I want to do. And that's what the Great Matters podcast represents is, is stories of people doing things that other people want to do not feeling alone and being a support system to those people. Mm, I love that. You do that so effectively through the show. I really love it. I highly encourage the listener to go over and subscribe, leave them a rating and review, and just know that any episode you open up, you are going to find some inspiration and positivity, no matter what the topic is, no matter who the guest is. It's really, really good. And it's one that I really love. I think a lot of people would you know, do what I did and watch some of the videos of you doing these crazy tricks, flipping through the air. And if you're not careful, you could think, wow, this guy is fearless. And you've mentioned fear, and I know that's a huge theme in your life. I just want you to um, go a little bit deeper into what, what fear means to you and um, why it's so important and what it can teach us. Yeah, and I think, you know, my, my take on fear is it's just an emotional response from a thought. That's all it is. I mean, we're born with two fears, fear of falling and fear of loud noises. Everything else is learned. It's, it's, it's passed down. It's modeled. It's absorbed. And when it comes to fear, it can always be traced back to a thought. 
what are you thinking that's making this fear happen? Usually it's fear of failure. It's fear of judgment and even fear of success. Because with all of those comes one, acknowledging an insecurity or change. That's where fear of success comes from. How is my life going to change? How are other people going to perceive me? What responsibilities? And it's like all these things that we want. And then we're like, oh, fearful about it because what's going to change in our lives. And so for me, fear is just a thought. And that's the first tattoo I ever got, like what, 2016, 17, across my forums. On one arm, it says fear is just a thought. On the other arm, it says thoughts can be changed. And it sounds simple, and it is. It's just not easy because it's it's what we're doing with fear tracing back to thoughts is we're uncovering the unconscious program that's putting us in these loops in life. And when we can change that loop, then we can change our reality. The tricky thing about personality, which fear is a negative emotion that's installed into our personality and it dictates how we behave, is it's an unconscious program. It's been learned over time. The way habits are formed is through conscious repetition. The way learning is is informed into our unconscious is through conscious repetition. So with fear, you know, take the example for, I guess an example of fear for me growing up, you know, fear of money was always a thing. And I watched my parents work paycheck to paycheck. Somehow I got a bike. Somehow we always had food on the table and rent paid for and never went hungry or cold or always had clothes and a ride to the school or whatever it was. But I watched the program of fear in terms of finances run for 17 years of my life until I was out on my own. And it wasn't until I was into my mid to late 20s where I started to uncover that like that's this isn't mine. This was an inherited. This was modeled. This was observed. And it just had to keep tracing it back to my thoughts. What am I thinking right now? What is driving this fear? And there's a great quick example of an exercise people can do. It's called TEAR, T-E-A-R. You start with your thoughts. When you have a negative emotional response, whatever it is, fear, we're talking about fear. What are you thinking that's creating this fear? Okay, what are the actions that you're participating in now because of this fear? Okay, now what is the reality or um, the response you're getting from this thought, emotion, and action or behavior? And so if you look at his thoughts, trigger emotions, which influence behavior, which creates our reality. Once you uncover that, then it's like, cool. Now I know why I'm doing this. Now I know why I'm experiencing this aspect of my life. Now let's flip it. What do you want? What do you want to think? Let's, can you think of something else that gives you a positive emotional response? You know, you can use the example of like being excited for a trip or being a kid excited for Christmas or being excited to surprise someone or being excited to see someone you haven't seen in a while or being excited to do something you love to do. What emotions come up with that? Now, what behavior do you think you'll participate in because of that emotional state? Now, what results or what reality is that going to give you? It starts there. Because now you're aware, you create an action plan to change it, and then through conscious repetition, can you rewire that part of your brain that is that program running to where you're no longer running off of fear, you're running off of gratitude, abundance, love. And for me, I realized that most of my, um, I think up until 25, 26, when I finally realized this, most of that time, if not all that time, especially my success in BMX, was fueled by anger and spite to prove people wrong. And then I learned through the brain tumor diagnoses that, oh, okay, this can only serve me so much. 
And it's causing a lot of problems in my life now. It's causing me to eat poorly. It's causing me to use alcohol to suppress the pain and the insecurities I have. I'm hiding behind my sex, my success in BMX, all these things. Now, after almost losing my life and literally dying on the flat ground of the contest a year after brain surgery, which is crazy to think about, 2011, I learned, okay, I can change how I fuel myself, literally and figuratively, I guess, nutritionally and mentally. And I decided to switch to being grateful for the opportunity I have to see another day, to be grateful to change what tomorrow looks like for me, what next year looks like for me, to be able to be grateful, to be able to share these things with other people to prevent something catastrophic happening in their life, to be grateful, to be alive. Like, like shit, my, my mentored hero and friend, Dave Muir took his life in 2016. Two years later, my brother passed away the same manner, my younger brother. And so for me to understand that I'm here and I'm here for a reason, which is the reason I made up. I don't know if it's true or not, but human beings were meaning making machines. There is no right or wrong. It just, it is what it is. And we decide that I made the meaning out of all these things and why I'm still alive that I need to contribute to others. And I can't do that from fear and anger and guilt and shame and spite. I need to do that from gratitude. I need to do that from love. I need to do that from abundance and fulfillment and purpose and passion. And that's why I do what I do today. That's why I haven't ridden my BMX bike in 16 months was because of the identity challenge I had to go through. I had to overcome who I believed I was and who I was programming myself for years as the BMX athlete. And I had to, I had to, I had to get rid of that gap of how I felt inside that I'm much more than a BMX athlete and what other people perceive me as, as the BMX athlete, I had to rewrite my story, but it took me years of conscious repetition and reminders to change that system. So going back to the tear method, it's very simple. The challenging part about it, like that's easy to do that. The hard part, the challenging part rather, not hard, it's challenging is to catch yourself it's to catch yourself either before, in the moment, or after. It doesn't matter. It's just to catch yourself with those old loops, those old programs. And then in that moment, whether it was after the fact, to say, what could I have done differently? What do I want to do differently? And how will that impact my life? Because when you can do that, you're changing the way your brain works to where you're going to get to the point where you catch yourself in your mind. Like it's like you're, you're pausing reality and you're catching yourself about to say something and you're like, Oh, I'm not going to say that. And then that's how change actually occurs. And it, it works the same way with behavior and emotions. And it's, it's the shit I have to remind myself every day of like, I mean, I'm facing a second brain surgery 11 years later in a couple months now. And it's like more relevant than ever because I have to practice these things. I don't have to. It's just what I want to do. And I know I must if I want to be in the state I am today of confidence, of love, and thinking about other people. Like, of all things to be going through, to be going through a brain surgery and to be thinking about other people, like, that's what's on my mind. I'm thinking about, I had to work through this too. This was a bit of a challenge a couple weeks ago, but like, I felt like a burden to other people that care about me because in my mind, it's easier for me to go through the shit than to be someone on the outside, not knowing what they can do or not being able to do anything. But I continue to focus on other people and I want to help other people. So I'm trying to figure out and I'm actually producing ways to leverage my circumstances to help other people, because I believe that we can be defined by the vision we hold in our mind, which is what created all the success in my life and allowed me to be alive today. I believe that's the only difference that people have to understand. It's just like, you are not your circumstances. You don't have to be defined by your circumstances. You don't have to be defined by your past. You don't have to be defined by what you do. 
you define who you are and who you define yourself as is going to dictate your thoughts, your emotions, your behavior, and it's ultimately going to create your reality. The thing is, your reality is not fixed. Your destiny is not fixed. It's your habits that create it. You choose what habits you want to create. And one of my favorite quotes is, you don't choose your destiny. You choose your habits. Your habits create your destiny. Mm. And so coming back to fear, it's just one of my favorite things to talk about because I think it's the number one thing holding people back from doing what they want in life, whether that be overcoming a health challenge, that be starting a business, that be going all in on their dream, that be fulfilling a passion, that asking someone on a date, that asking for promotion, that giving a talk, that making a change in their life. It comes back to fear. And it always comes back to a thought that you are probably unaware of that takes either you doing this work or having a friend or hiring a coach or finding someone to support you by asking those challenging questions and you being open enough to acknowledge this thought that usually society gave to me or my parents gave to me is not serving me because it's creating this emotional state, which is creating this behavior, which is not helping me get to where I want, which is creating this reality that I dislike. So if you can use that tear method and then create an action plan of conscious repetition even if you do something that you don't want to do, you catch yourself, oh shit, I did that. I should have done that. Or I don't want to do that. What could I do next time? That's going to create more of an inspiration for your brain to think about that event that happens next time to where usually you would have yelled at someone. Next time that happens, you're like, oh, I feel myself getting triggered. Do I want to yell? Or do I want to respond with a question or walk away? And there'll be times where Jackie and I got into an argument a couple uh, months ago and I, I, <laughs> I was so aware of my ego at work getting into the triggering of emotions. And I was like, don't do this. You should, this isn't what you want. You just want, but I, I felt my ego taking over and still participating in the argument, even though I knew I was wrong. And then got to the point where I was like, okay, I need to let this go. I need to apologize, acknowledge I'm wrong. And it, it became funny at that moment. Cause I, I felt like my true self being suppressed by my ego, which was the ego is always acting out of fear, which is fine. It's trying to protect our lives. The difference is we're not living in caveman times. Most of the fear is projected and made up and it's not real. Wow. Man, this is exactly why we wanted to invite you on the show. We could connect with you so well and seeing your content and everything you're putting out there, we just knew you would be an awesome guest. You have been amazing. I love your message. I love your stories. Tell the listener where they can go to find you and your work. Yeah, so literally every platform on social media is just Josh Perry BMX, whether that's LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Is there any other ones? At least that I'm on. I think I made a TikTok account and put like two posts on like a while ago when it first came out. And I was like, I can't, I can't add another one There's too many of them, man. Too many platforms (laughs) to just like struggle through. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm just not about it. So, um, but then my website is just joshparabmx.com. But as you and I noted earlier, you have to type in www.joshparabmx.com because a five-year-old website of mine is still up somehow if you don't type in the www part. Um, So yeah, that's, uh, yeah, just joshparabmx. And there's a funny story about it. Uh, joshperry.com the person who's sitting on that domain wants five grand for that website and the josh perry account on instagram has been inactive for eight years and i've been trying to get a hold of them or instagram to get it but i decided to choose to embrace the bmx past that has led me to where i am today and what i'm known for and then um you know try to change people's perceptions one year at a time and with one action at a time and yeah, so for now, everything's just Josh Perry BMX. That's great. 
Well, it sounds like you need to call the internet and ask them what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. I just with need that. to hire someone that knows what they're doing and just help Seriously. me delete that because I thought <laughs> I got rid of every trace of it, but it's still there. That's so funny. Josh Perry, thank you again so much for all of your work and for your message. It is super inspiring and empowering, and we are so grateful for you and for everything you've done and for taking the time to come to our show today. Awesome, Casey. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you reaching out and everything that you're doing to help other people as well. So it's been a, it's been a pleasure and I'm, uh, I'm super grateful for our time. Yeah, total honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.